You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. A wine glass is a wine glass is a wine glass, right? Wrong. To truly appreciate good wine, you should be sipping it from a vessel specifically designed to open it up. And if you're doing it right, that glass was probably made by Riedel. If you've ever been to a fine dining restaurant, and especially one that focuses on wine, you've probably encountered a Riedel glass. Riedel Crystal is a 265-year-old family-owned Austrian glassware company that is practically synonymous with wine glasses, having designed and produced crystal glasses for every specific wine you can name. Its products grace tables from the most exclusive white cloth establishments to those of the wine enthusiast at home. My guest today on The Luxury Item is Maximilian Riedel, President and CEO of Riedel Crystal. Maximilian is the 11th generation of his family to make fine glass products and since 2014 has been at the helm of Riedel Crystal. From the introduction of the O series to his original collection series of functional decanters, Maximilian strives to build upon the incredible legacy of his family. One of his latest forays into the world of cocktails, expanding the ingenuity of Riedel beyond wine. Welcome to the luxury item, Maximilian. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining the show. I'm very excited to be speaking with you. So Riedel Crystal is in its 11th generation of family ownership and has been around for nearly three centuries. So for our listeners, could, could you briefly share with them a little bit about the company's origins? With pleasure. So we are a true family business handed from father to son. I'm the 11th generation. And of course, my goal must be to lead the company uh, into the next generation. And I would be very happy and excited. Mission accomplished if one of my kids would like to take over. I think that's the biggest challenge. The family has its origin in Bohemia, which is now Czech Republic. We were uh, Sudeten Germans which meant that we built a business, a sustainable uh, and a substantial business um, then in Bohemia. But due to rules and regulations after World War II, being Austrians, my family had to leave the country and leave everything behind, which means uh, all of a sudden we went from an industrial wealthy family to a poor family restarting their business uh, in Austria, which was a country new to us. Now, how did you make your way into the business? Uh, you know, fast forward, you know, nearly three nearly 300 years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> truly fast forward. Uh, the way I made my way into the business is, first of all, yeah, uh, I was growing up with this kind of uh, being involved in the business. My parents always hosted guests at our house, always, of course, being surrounded by wine, winemakers, people from the industry. And uh, after school, visiting my family, my father being the, uh, the owner of the company and obviously running the business and my mom in charge of retail and running our little retail store here on site, close to the factory. Uh, I was kind of brought up in the factory after school, visiting, being friendly with all the glassmakers, knowing everybody by first name and was fascinating to me. And, and then, of course, uh, I, I, 
I, I learned how important this business was to my family. And I was brought up like in the movies uh, from father to son. And right. of course, then there came the challenging times after school, what I'm going to do when school finished. So my parents sent me off into the world. My first job was in Paris, in France, working for one of our uh, distributors. And uh, then uh, being confronted with a choice. Where do I want to earn my credits to be the one who runs the business next. So my father gave me a choice either, and we're talking the year 2000, um, either I go, would go to Asia and, uh, and, and show there what I can do, how I can grow the business, how I can manage uh, and start a subsidiary, or I go to United States. And for me, uh, then I wanted to desperately go to Asia and I, I had a trip. I was a month in Asia, traveled from to China, uh, then to Hong Kong, to Japan, to Taiwan and other countries. And I, and I really enjoyed not only my visit, but it just made me more secure in my decision that I wanted to go to Asia. But my father said, no, there is an opening in America and America then the United States was our biggest export market. And mm -hmm. so uh, our then CEO left the company and my father said, you should go there and, uh, and show what you can do. And I was very lucky to go to the United States because not only was it then already biggest export market, I turned it into our largest global market. So I've learned a lot in the United States. When you first took over as president and CEO, were you, what were you seeing in the marketplace, in the glass, specifically in the glassware category, that you saw that there was an opportunity? Well, the opportunity was a given. In 2000, that late, um, Scott, wine really started to boom, not the production, but the consumption in North America. All of a sudden, people started to drink wine. And the best indicator was on a flight. In the morning, in business class, people were drinking already Bloody Marys uh, <laughs> next to their coffees in America. It was a very yeah. American thing to do. Yeah. And, and this has changed because I would say in 2003, 2004, people started to order American Airways, wherever you flew, started to order a glass of wine. And I was there at the right time promoting, communicating the function of our glasses. And of course, my most important customer is the winemaker, is the winery, because they celebrate wine, they communicate wine, they explain wine, and they needed an instrument, a tool. And it was the real glass. And then, of course, the next step is the sommelier, the restaurateurs. So I became very friendly with uh, the people of that time promoting our product because they believed in it it helped them sell better wine. And, and, and this is where, yeah, it was the right time for me to shine. And it was also, also then, of course, every hotel had a bar, but a bar was a given. But the bartender, this whole theme of mixology started also that late in the United mm -hmm. States. Of course, you have great history of, of, of barkeeping, but uh, there was a boom. And, and, and for me, when I worked with the people behind the bar, they told me, I love your wine glasses, but we need to do something that I can also start selling and promoting cocktails in a wine glass. And this is how I, 
I gave the idea of the stemless wine glass, the Riedel O, the stemless oh, wine right. tumbler, which was in 2004. So all of these ideas I had in America, working with American customers, that being uh, wineries, sommeliers, chefs, and the mixologists of that time. And they influenced me a lot. So have you seen the category itself evolve over the last few decades? You mean wine the glass? The glassware yes, the wine glass category. Well, 2008 broke the neck of many glass companies, in particular smaller workshops, which sadly are gone. Sadly, not only because I lost valuable competitors, but also sadly because this, this skill, the art, the job, being a glassmaker became very unpopular. Mm-hmm because there were not, not many people offering jobs. And when we think about the biggest glass brands in America, they're all gone. They're all gone. I'm not talking about Europeans selling glass like Waterford to America. I'm talking about true local American production. The only ones left standing is Libby, but all the other ones, uh, they're gone. And this is a pity because now it's all on us to promote this wonderful product, Glass Crystal, which carries a great value in it because the way how it's being made, how it's being celebrated. I mean, Glass Crystal was always reserved for the church and the royal families of Europe because it was so precious. And this, this, this flair is gone. So now, of course, we had to reinvent Glass by making it the key to wine. It's the stage for wine to shine. So the wine glass for me is next to the window glass, the only glass that has remained popular. But all these kind of decorative glass pieces, chandeliers, vases for flowers, it's not popular anymore. And I see this in my numbers when I talk to other glass manufacturers. Uh, It's a tough time for us. And real glasses are made entirely by hand, correct? No. No, 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 no. This has changed long time ago. Only 3% of my entire production is handmade. Uh-huh. Here in the hearts of Europe, in my own factory, which was started by my grandfather, handed over from generation to generation. And I have about 120 glass makers who still have the art, the skill of glass making. But that's only 2%. The rest is made on my machines in Bavaria, Germany, mm-hmm. in my factories, which I'm very proud about. Because for me, I'm not only a brand, I'm, I'm also a manufacturer next to a, a workshop. Uh, and, and nowadays, machine-made glass, you can't really tell the difference anymore uh, between handmade and machine-made. And how much of your business is for the hospitality sector, like restaurants, hotels, and wineries and bars versus the consumer business? Well, since we are still in facing the crisis and the pandemic, the COVID-19 times, uh, everything has changed. But I would like to go back to 2019. 2019. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? No, I, I not, not really, because I always <laughs> live in the, in, the, in the present and in the future. But 2019 for, for Riedel, was the most successful year to date. Mm. And, and then uh, the hospitality side of my business represented 50% of my business. And it was the hospitality side of my business that had the biggest growth year over year because Riedel was a brand originally developed for consumers. 
And only because of the high demand for restaurants, I have developed a collection which was very much influenced by the top chefs of the United States, such as Daniel Boulou, who mm -hmm. told me I would love to use your glasses, but they are fragile, they're this, they're that. So they gave me many excuses why they wouldn't use it. And I listened very carefully. And I, I turned those excuses uh, into, into the benefits. Uh, and I turned it around and I created a new collection, which is called Riedel Restaurant, which is exclusive to the hospitality side. And it, it, it showed the biggest growth. Now things have changed again in, in just in, in 12 months because now I'm selling so much more to the consumer and there was a real boom in crystal, in handmade because all of a sudden, thanks to online retail because the rest was closed, uh, many, many people uh, realized because dining out all the time, they're missing glasses at home. They don't have fine crystal. They love wine. They have a cellar, but they brought their own, shared it with friends, but they didn't really have good glasses anymore at home. Uh, and so a lot of people invested money into glassware. So 2021, the first quarter for us was probably the most successful so far because people realizing I need better glasses at home. Right. And they were doing more drinking of, of wine and spirits over the past year during the pandemic. And they were able to basically to be more introspective about what's in their household and what they're drinking from. And they look closer at those things. Absolutely. And what we have heard from our partners in the United States, we have uh, a wholesale distributors in each one of the states. These are also wine distributors and spirits distributors that actually uh, they have sold a lot more high-priced items to consumers than they have ever done before. Of course, the restaurant side had a big dent. In most of the states, restaurants were closed, such as in the big state of New York. Mm -hmm. But the consumers picked up on it. So they didn't really see... They saw a big uh, drop in sales in medium to low-priced wines, but the high-priced wines, they could have sold so much more if they would have had it in stock. Looking forward over the next few years, do you see that balancing out more? Um, are you expecting, hoping that this consumer business stays around and continues to grow and maybe offset some of the hospitality, even as the restaurants continue to open? Absolutely. Not only do I hope for that, uh, there is good indication because I think that everybody shifted from home, outdoors, into restaurants, because they improved everything, service, etc. So, and and you could also find good, healthy food outside your home for a decent pricing. And I, but I believe that people realize now spending more time at home, in particular uh, outside the big cities, that it's nice to be home. It's nice to be with family, and there is not always the need to go out. I believe that in the next couple of weeks and months, it will be different, including myself. I will dine out every, every, every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, just because there, there is a backlog of, of six months where I, I couldn't do it. Good. <laughs> right. but, but then I think we all will be looking forward again to this casual time at home. And for me in particular, spending time with my family. I've spent so much time with my family in the last six months than I have done in years accumulated. And I will miss that, I believe. And others will feel the same way. So I don't think that we will go back to 2019. I do see that the restaurants are coming back. 
I see them coming back even stronger. Some of them have decided to, to spend more money on better quality. I can mm -hmm. tell you that based on facts. Uh, but I also feel that people who have now had a taste of being at home, and in particular, those who have a nice home and who can afford a home, good, this is also not a given, that they will spend more time at home. You know, you have competitors out there, you know, from Waterford to Baccarat. How does Riedel position itself in this marketplace to, to consumers? Well, uh, Baccarat, uh, Lalique and Waterford have gone through many new ownerships. Baccarat has a new owner, which is Chinese and, and other things, uh, which is good because they are the ones who keep the brands alive. Um, but what separates my brand, Riedel, from theirs is I'm producing tools. I'm a tool maker. My wine glass is not a piece of art. It should not catch dust and it's not dealing well with flowers. Good. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and when you look at the, at the wine glass assortment from Baccarat, they're neat glasses, but they have really very little function to them. So I don't see them as a competitor. And what I like best about them is the high price point because they really, yeah, they are, they are asking uh, prices for products which, which, which are extremely high. And I always feel like my product is not a luxury or is at all expensive when I compare it to them. Right. I don't see those brands as competitors. I see other brands more as competitors who, who compete on copying my ideas, producing them uh, overseas, maybe in Turkey, China, in Czech Republic, where labor is just very inexpensive and they compete with me over price. This is more of a competitor than those luxury brands that, that, that you have mentioned. So do you think the consumers know the difference? Well, I'm a consumer and, and I like brands because when I invest in a product where there's a brand behind it, I know that in case something is, is defective, faulty, if I have questions or if I want to buy in 10 years the same product again because I was lucky, I only broke one out of six glasses that I got from my mm -hmm. wedding gift. You know, that's why you have a brand. You can always go back to them. Right. And, uh, and, and when you... When you use them, you feel good about it because you bought and invested in a brand. It's an investment versus competitors who have no name or who are like mushrooms popping up. They're there to shine for a short period of time because they had a good idea, but then they disappear again. I think that the consumer is very careful in particularly now how and where to spend their money. So let's go back a little bit throughout the spring of 2020. Europe and the world essentially was hit severely by COVID-19. How did Riedel first respond to the outbreak? Did you have to suspend production? We lived through the entire nightmare. Everything that comes to your mind happened to us. Because, first of all, we are people. We're humans. Good. We felt it skin to skin. My mother, my sister had covid it was, not, it was not good. We suffered through it. We were afraid about life and death. So it, it got that close. Um, as a company, yes, we, and I have a company in China. I have a company in America, in Australia, in the UK, all over the world, I have subsidiaries. So we saw it coming because my Chinese subsidiary was the first one to shut down. And then we had last year in February, the most important trade show 
And the Americans already didn't come because they were afraid of, uh, of, of having their employees being impacted by it or bring it back to America. Good. So I remember it didn't pop up in America first. I think it came first to Europe and then it, it ventured off throughout the entire world. Uh, then, of course, we had to, being a manufacturer in Germany and in Austria, being uh, an employer in America, every country had different rules and regulations. Right. Furlough in America, furlough in the UK, uh, Kurzarbeit in Germany is furlough in Austria. Yes, all my factories had to go into furlough. All of my employees had to go into home office. What happened with home office? And that's the reason why I'm opposed to it, absolutely opposed to it. Somebody opened a wrong email that, of course, our firewall being at home in a home office could not detect. So what happened? We got hacked. Scott, we got hacked. Uh, we got hacked. We got, we got shut down. Uh, the production, uh, the communication, online, everything got shut down. So in addition to furlough, pandemic, uh, crisis, family members being affected, we got hacked. We had to pay a ransom. Mm. If we had police all over the place. So there was not, and then we had the American elections. We had have a new president. I need to remind you what happened. Could the storm in Washington, all of this, the bad news and all of that, of course, it was, it was a most difficult time not only for the people who listen, but also for us here in Europe, for my employees in America, and, uh, and we will never forget it. Yeah, I hope everybody came out okay. And sadly not. We also had some deaths in the company. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yes. Um, so around this time a year ago, you know, across the U.S. market, consumers were stockpiling alcohol as the shelter-in-place orders were implemented and bars and restaurants were closed or had reduced services. Alcohol volume experienced these massive shifts from the on-premise to off-premise, and the pandemic also inspired a renewed interest in home goods, home mixology, and these virtual happy hours that were going on all the time. So did you see a spike in demand for tabletop glassware in that period, the same time as people were sort of doing things at home? Absolutely. As I mentioned previously, uh, to the consumer, our business grew and doubled from, from, from the pre-pandemic throughout the pandemic, we saw that people liked to spend money purely online, uh, buying some really high-priced luxury products from us, such as handmade glasses versus machine-made glasses. And, uh, and I spend a lot of time on social media my account on Instagram is Max Sexy Real. I have 130,000 followers, mm. and and it's amazing how I was able to interact. How I spend a lot of time because I had time, right. and I and I and I saw what people drank and how they drank, and and of I would say Zoom calls guided us through this pandemic because all of a sudden we were when we learned how to deal with it, we were able to conduct business as usual without being in front of the customer, being in front of the consumer. How do you think customers discovered you or found out about the brand during the pandemic? 
Well, I spent a lot of time on it. I, I pushed very hard. I stayed very creative. <laughs> I somehow, I overdid it. Uh, <laughs> on TikTok, I have a video that reached close to 9 million people. And oh, I'm, I'm just a glass. I'm going to have to check that so, out. <laughs> uh, so we had, in this regard, a good time because we went wild and crazy exploring in this direction simply because we had time. I'm normally, Scott, I'm traveling 200 years out of the... Uh, 200 days out of the year, meeting and greeting customers all over the world. And I couldn't this time. So what am I going to do with that time? And I think I used it wisely by doing a direct-to-consumer uh, correspondence. And I answered a lot of questions such as how to clean your glasses, how to store your glasses. So we were there from the beginning till the end. Right. For educational purposes and at the same Absolutely. time, helping them discover the brand. That's terrific. You know, it seems, I want to talk about the wine industry for a second. So it seems like after a quarter century of growth, the wine industry, you know, was remaining as popular as ever with the high consumption rates appeared to sustain. But the challenge of recruiting younger and these health conscious and even multicultural consumers into the category, coupled with an aging core drinker, continued to weigh on the wine industry. How do you think that's going to impact your business looking forward? Well, for me, it was always clear that wine is a niche product, Scott. If I compare the consumption of wine versus Coca-Cola, beer, water, we are a niche, good? And as long as you know that, and that this is my spectrum within, I can grow, uh, I know who my consumer is. And we, and we obviously, with modern technology, we analyze who the consumer is, we analyze the age group, and, uh, and so I'm gearing everything in that direction. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that there is still a lot of people who are going to enter this wonderful world of wine. In particular, after the pandemic comes to an end, people will go on journeys and they will travel and they want to get to know the winemakers because they have had the wine, they enjoyed it, they had more exposure to wine at home, which meant they had more time focusing on the beverage than in a restaurant. You want a glass of this, you want a glass of that. At home, you open the bottle and it took you one, two, three days to finish it. So you really learned about that particular wine a lot. And maybe now it's time for you to meet and greet the winemaker. So I think that um, it was good for the wine industry that people were at home spending time exploring these wines and maybe also that new people came on board because they were curious. In a restaurant, to order a wine from a wine list is a challenge. And I noticed from friends who are not really wine savvy, they don't know what to do in a restaurant. And I don't know why. There is a sommelier whom you can ask all the questions. And there is not a stupid question, Scott, as you know. A question right. is a question. But people have this kind of uh, distancing. And at home... You have the internet, you know, you Google it, you look it up and then you, you, you place an order. Maybe in your state, it's allowed to order online and the wine comes and then you can really explore it. And nobody looks at you uh, because you have a budget. Maybe it's different than my budget for wine, but nobody looks at you because you're doing it for yourself. But what, what, what is interesting to me, Scott, is, uh, I, you know, I lived in America for 15 years. I was first living on Long Island, then in Hoboken, New Jersey, then in Manhattan, and I traveled throughout the 50 states. And, and this was the beginning when I left the Americas in 2013. It was the beginning of uh, marijuana. 
Everybody mm -hmm. was able to consume it, to buy it locally in certain states, to grow it. I think that that's a bigger threat to the wine world than anything else. Because, yeah, I think a lot of people uh, maybe like the taste, like the effect of it. It's less expensive than a bottle of wine, you know, and you can do it by yourself. A bottle of wine, I would generally open when I have a guest you need two or three people to enjoy a bottle of wine versus if people roll it and smoke it. It's that, that's a different, that, I think that's a bigger threat to the wonderful world of wine than anything else. Yeah. Cannabis. Hmm. Exactly. That's uh, that's a strong possibility. So does, does Riedel have a philosophy for designing its glassware? Yes. Form follows function. We don't produce pretty glasses, beautiful glasses. We produce glasses for a purpose. And our purpose is the grape variety. So at Riedel, you don't find a red wine or a white wine glass. We are more in detail. You find a Cabernet glass, a Pinot Noir, a Syrah glass, as an example, or a Riesling, a Chardonnay glass. So this is also the key to our success. And we are lucky that our glasses are pretty and people feel that they are organically shaped, they're beautifully shaped, they're very light, they're balanced. So this is a side effect, but the main focus for us is the grape variety. Yeah, I was reading that the expert glassmakers at Riedel focus on three things when designing a glass, size, shape, and rim diameter. And those three parameters have an impact on the perception of the wine. So do wine glasses really make a difference to taste? Huge, Scott. It turns a sip of wine into celebration. And I would like to compare it with a sound system. You play your favorite song in a bad sound system versus a modern sound system. Uh, it's just, it sounds and feels different. Music. And the same is with wine because wine speaks to all of our senses and the glass is in between. It's the communicator. And... Uh, it's very simple to try it at home. You need three things. You need a real glass, a plastic cup, and the wine bottle. Taste the wine and smell the wine from the bottle. Nobody drinks wine from the bottle. Agreed. You drink Coca-Cola from the bottle. Why? I don't know. The same with beer. But this has nothing to do with enjoyment. Good. This is just a refresher. Wine from the bottle, where you don't smell, you just taste versus a plastic cup, versus a real glass. And you will not, if you do it blind, for example, there is no way that you could say that it's the same wine from the three different vessels. And this is just the, the hardcore extreme, good? If you right. grow further, just take your favorite wine glass versus the proper grape varietal specific real glass versus uh, a juice glass. There's so much for people who are listening to us to just try it in this sense without going too sophisticated, just to see, because people forget that wine enjoyment is 70% through your nose. It's parfum. And, and, and this is so important. This separates wine from any other beverage, from any other beverage. Do the winemakers ever get involved in the process of testing out the glasses? 100%. I would never bring something to market without the approval of a winemaker. Scott, it's a long process. So for example, there are grape varieties which are still unknown to most people. There's a grape variety from Russia, 
former Soviet Union, now Georgia. Good. It's called Saparavi, just as an example, because we did a workshop just recently. It's one of the few red wine grapes where it's not only the skin of the fruit is red, but also the juice. We all know that we can make white wine out of red wine grapes. Everybody had it. Champagne is the perfect example. Good. In this particular case, it doesn't work because also the juice is red. And we have made a glass for that specific grape called Saparavi. Another extreme is one of the few uh, local grapes to the North America, uh, born and raised in America, is called Norton, the Norton grape. The Norton grape has its origin in Virginia. Good. Mm -hmm. And we were called by the winemakers from producing this fruit, growing this fruit, to a workshop, and that's how we call it, where we sit down with the producers and we develop through taste and smell a glass, a shape for their fruit. And so we have done this also for a true North American grape called Norton. In case people are listening, look for that fruit because it is phenomenal. It's a great wine. It has American history. It is American history. And we made a glass for it, you know? So it's not only when you look through my catalog, you go online at Riedel.com and you see the generic glasses. For me, sorry to say, Riesling, Cabernet, Pinot Noir, these are fruits that everybody knows and most countries grow and producing wonderful wines. But everybody knows about these grapes. There are so many grape varieties that people have yet to discover. Hmm. And we are working with, in particular, with those fruit growers, with those winemakers, uh, with those farmers to find the perfect messenger for their wine. And they see it as great marketing because we have a global standing. Uh, very few people have been introduced to their fruit. And when I communicate, when I share, when I talk about it, uh, they're happy about it. And they use my glasses to really show their fruit at the very best in my glass. So does Riedel have a distribution network in China? You know, Chinese consumers don't tend to drink wine as much at home. So have you expanded out there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my father has been traveling to China going back to the 80s. My first trip to China was in 1999. It's not long ago, but traveling to China, this is like a whole history, you know, so many things have changed in the last 30 years, uh, which is, uh, which is, which is uh, wonderful. And uh, we, we have been working with a lot of wine producers in China, but also with the big brands. I don't know if many people know, but Moet and Chandon, LVMH, they have a winery in the Himalayas, which is the winery at the highest altitude period. And they produce a wine there called Ayun. And uh, believe it or not, I've tasted this wine from its beginnings. And we were asked uh, by LVMH to produce a glass for it. But this is just one example. We have We've traveled to the wineries uh, of China. We've learned and studied a lot about Chinese made wine. And we all know the boom around 2000 to 2010. All the first grows from Bordeaux, from Burgundy, a big portion went to China because there was a huge hype about it. There's a lot of wealthy people. And wine is yet there. It's very new to, to the Chinese uh, world of fine wine and fine dining. So we were there at the beginning 
we had great partners there who introduced us to the wine culture, which is a very young culture in China. And we have made great friends. And I think Riedel is the wine glass of choice in China. Have you seen the Chinese customer evolve over the last 10 years? Definitely, because at the beginning, it was all about valuable, high-priced wine. And now, if you talk to the wine consumers in China, which are still very limited, don't get me wrong, but they know a lot about wine and not only anymore about Lafitte and Latour. So they mm -hmm. know also about the wines that you and I, Scott, we like to drink. So how can a 300-year-old heritage glassware brand like Riedel continue to innovate and stay relevant in a changing marketplace? Well, because the company is old, but the people who run it are very young and feisty, including myself. <laughs> we stay eager. We are hungry. We are motivated. We love to live our lives. We love to travel. We love to meet and greet people. This hasn't changed. And uh, there are always opportunities out there. You just have to catch them at the right time. And I think we have a talent for that. And, uh, and that's our philosophy is we never look into the back mirror. We live life in present and we plan the future. And this is why we are successful. And part of staying relevant is, is tapping into this new generation of younger clients, obviously without sacrificing your loyal customers. So does Riedel have a social media strategy? I know you said you, had, you were talking about TikTok and you have a, a, a large Instagram account. So does Riedel have a social media strategy overall in place to reach a broader audience, particularly younger audiences? Scott? Uh, that would, been a, would have been a question that you should have asked me five years ago. It's a common. Whoever does not have already in place a social media strategy since years has missed the boat. It's, I think, too difficult now to get into it and to start it. Um, un unless you are a celebrity from Hollywood or in the music industry. Um, all this kind of algorithm that's behind it, how to position, how to place. We have studied this and we've turned it into uh, our, one of our most important tools to communicate the advantages of our product. The reach uh, that we have through social media is, is endless. And let's not forget, it translates everything into the language which is your mother tongue. So it's the best way to communicate it's the best way for me and my product to shine. So we've seen a designer collaborations over the past several years, like Baccarat with uh, Virgil Abloh. And any plans in the future for Riedel to collaborate with more edgier cult brands to gain access to this new target market? Well, I call them strategic partners. And I started that already many years ago. And the first one... Uh, next to the wineries that we have been working with, and we have been working with those for the last 30 years. But the first one, which was a true strategic partner, is the answer to the most frequent asked question, which is, Mr. Riedel, how do I wash your glasses? And the answer is, put them into the dishwasher. So <laughs> the number one strategic partner was and is Miele, Miele Dishwasher, another mm -hmm. family business, a family from Germany, for me, the best dishwasher in the world. It made sense to cooperate. Next to that, another uh, fun partnership uh, is Lindt Chocolate, because whenever I conduct tastings with 
big audiences for 100 to 500 people where people, I guide them through three glasses with different wines. I always like to do a little food and wine pairing. And for that, traveling the world, having always consistent food, it's chocolate. So Lindt Chocolate is another company that we are associated ourselves with. And then, of course, LVMH with all the fun product, being it I created a glass for Dom Perignon, I created a glass for Crook Champagne, for Ayun. We've been working with Cheval Blanc and many of, uh, of their brands. So those are all partnerships that, we, that are very important to us. And I'm sure they will not be the last ones. And then a one which is biggest fun is Nespresso for coffee. Yes, Riedel has created oh, some of that. the most interesting coffee tasting glasses. And uh, it was a, a big challenge for us because we never had to work with thermic. We never worked with hot beverages. And the heat has a great impact, not on the glass itself, but how it shows the parfum. So Nespresso and Riedel, we've been partners for the last five years. Very exciting. Uh, fruit for thought because it motivates us to, to remain creative, not only at the level of wine and glass, but also other beverages. And last but not least, Coca-Cola. I mean, most surreal being the wine glass company and not everybody was a friend of the idea that Riedel all of a sudden worked with Coca-Cola. So that's was, true. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you that. I, yeah. I, that you did come out with a glass specifically for It was for great fun. It was great fun because... How did that come they, about? Yeah, it came about that somebody from the Coca-Cola company ended up on our, on our booth at a, at a trade show with a product in his hand. And he saw in us just a glassmaker. And he said, can you copy whatever he held in his hand? And we said, no, we never copied anything and we will not copy. But come here, taste different wine from different glasses. And we can do the same for you and Coca-Cola. I can present to you Coca-Cola in a way you, have, you will not recognize it in a blind tasting. And he took this idea back to Atlanta. And the heads of Coca-Cola were so interested in our ideas that they invited us. And we created a specific glass for Coca-Cola, uh, which uh, was a huge success, but a short-lived success. Because um, we are the wine glass company. And uh, people expected us to produce wine glasses and not Coca-Cola glasses. And for Coca-Cola, it was a fun uh, experience, but they put very little effort and support behind it. So it is, it is what it is. We learned a lot. It was for us a great challenge. I think we accomplished the mission. Coca-Cola tastes best out of this glass. And it was fun. So what is Riedel doing on the sustainability front? Are there any strategies or approaches in place to save on resources, carbon emissions, or perhaps the reuse of waste glass? Absolutely. So if you would look up my Instagram, I have done a whole post around that because I'm very proud about it. Look, I'm not a go-getter and a, a short-lived uh, millionaire with a great idea. We are family business, and my goal must be to hand over the business intact to the next generation and sustainability is one of the most important tasks and so we have said goodbye for example from lead in our glass so we are no longer producing lead crystals since 2015 because of that we have said goodbye to many ingredients which were harmful to the environment or even to us humans we are very keen on the production method 50% of the products that are being released 
are being produced based on recycled glass from our own furnaces. Our product is 100% recyclable, uh, including the packaging that we source. So we are very keen on that not only us, but also our suppliers in whatever we are getting supply from, they have been certified to be sustainable. So I believe we're doing the very best we can do in our field uh, to keep the environment safe. And we are considering the next generation the most important generation. Yeah, so Maximilian, you're a very innovative guy. So what can we expect from Riedel in the next five years? Well, we uh, are staying innovative. We are staying creative. I have already now so many ideas already put on paper. I have so many prototypes of newness that I would need at least another 10 years just to launch them <laughs> without overwhelming the market. And if you ask any of my retailers, any of my partners, they will tell you that Riedel is most probably the most innovative supplier that they have. And, uh, and, and, and I believe that one of the reasons why we're successful is because we are innovative, we're creative, and every year we launch a ton of new product. Um, and what is interesting on the other end, we're discontinuing very little product because it's such a successful run that we're on because people like the brand, people like the people behind the brand. I have a fantastic team. Just yesterday, I thanked an employee who has been with us for 60 years. Wow. So uh, people are with us for generations. We have employees who are uh, sadly no longer with us because they retired now, but they started with my great grandfather. So they have been with us for four generations. And this makes me very proud and a very lucky entrepreneur. So Maximilian, my last question, which I ask all my guests is the luxury item question. If you were stranded, on a deserted island, and you could only have one luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air transportation or water transportation. That requires mobile service. It's just you, the island, maybe a palm tree or two. What would that one luxury item be that you would want to have with you? Well, that's a very tricky question because first of all, it would not be an item. It would be my spouse, <laughs> but I guess I, I'm alone. I'm alone. And, uh, and so I would not want to have a luxury item. I would like to have a tool, which is my Swiss army knife because I need to consider to survive. Good. I like that. Maximilian Riedel, CEO and president of Riedel Crystal. Thank you so much for joining me on the luxury item. It was a fascinating show. I learned a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Scott. And uh, thank you to all the listeners for spending some time with us. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.